We are continuing our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we will finish the seventh chapter this morning. Before we read God's word to us, let us ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and receive this word in our hearts by faith. Let us pray together. Lord God, help us turn our hearts and our attention to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your spirit. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. Lesson this morning comes from the seventh chapter of Romans, verses 13 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. You might want to keep your Bibles open. It even sounds confusing. There is an old Indian proverb about six blind men who are asked to describe an elephant. Each is touching a different part of the elephant, so each man has a very different perspective of what the elephant is like. For instance, one who is touching the trunk says it's like a snake, and one who is touching the leg says it's like a tree, so on and so forth. 
The men, all being confident about what they've experienced, proceed to argue with one another about what the elephant is like, all failing to realize that each is touching a different part of the same animal. The primary lesson of the story is clear, right? As John Godry Sachs writes in his retelling of this parable, these men disputed long, loud and long. Each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. Well, I've heard this parable used to promote very wrong-headed ideologies like relativism and pluralism. The parable, to me, is really just a classic example of missing the forest for the trees. It's easy to focus on the particulars and to miss the big picture. I begin with this illustration because it is exceedingly easy to miss the big picture in Romans 7. Since the entire chapter is written in the first person, there's an obvious assumption that Paul is speaking of himself and his experience. This wasn't an issue in verses 7 through 12 since Paul is speaking in the past tense. This would make sense, right, for a believer in Christ who has now come alive in Christ and who has died to the law in sin to speak of his experience with the law in the past tense. Did you notice something here, though? What's happened? The tense has changed. And he's now speaking in the present tense. The question becomes then, if he's still speaking of himself, how do we make sense out of what he is saying? How do we explain that on the one hand he describes himself in the present tense nonetheless as being sold under sin? And on the other hand, having the desire to do what is right and delight in the law of God. Do you see the issue here? What Regenerate believer describes himself as one in whom nothing good dwells and who is sold under sin. Paul has already said in chapter 6 that those who are in Christ have died to sin and are no longer enslaved to it. But then again, what unregenerate person describes God's law as good and delights in it and longs for it? Paul will say in chapter 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It would be very easy at this point to throw up our hands and just move on. And yet, this passage is immensely important since it influences our understanding and practice of the Christian life. Therefore, we don't want to get it wrong. This is perhaps why commentators go to great lengths trying to figure out who this I is. Is it Paul before his conversion or after? Is it Paul after his conversion looking back at his pre-Christian self? Or similarly, is it the Jewish experience before Christ? Those who have faith and delight in God's law but have not yet received the spirit to free them from the power of sin? Is it Paul after his conversion, but before he truly understands his freedom in Christ? Or perhaps it's Paul who has been convicted of his sin by the Holy Spirit, but not yet converted to Christ. 
Is it Paul describing the struggle Christians face living between the already and the not yet? Suspended so uncomfortably between having died with Christ to sin in the law and not yet having fully shared in the resurrection? Many of these commentators get quite creative in attempting to find a solution, and there are solid arguments to go with each position, but none are wholly satisfying, especially due to the pesky present tense in which Paul writes. And all of them have implications on how we view the Christian life. I urge you, though, do not miss the forest for the trees. If we become consumed with the question of who the I is, then we will miss what is the big issue here in Romans 7. What is it? It's the law, right? Paul wants us to understand the place and the purpose of the law, especially in the lives of believers. This is a continuation and further explanation of what he's been saying throughout chapter 7. What's he been saying? Those who are in Christ have been freed from the law, which is not only powerless to justify us, but which also arouses sin in us, being used by sin as a base of operations from which our fallen human nature is attacked and killed. This is what we discussed last Sunday. Paul has insisted, though, that the law is holy and good being revealed by God as a perfect expression of his desire and will. And as such, it reveals to us the depth and the power of our sin. So the law, though it's been used by sin as an instrument to accomplish sin's purposes, is not to be confused with something that is evil or bad. So Paul continues this line of thinking here in our passage today, stating that the law is not also responsible for death. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in men through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Again, we have a very emphatic no to a question about the goodness of the law. May it never cross our minds That the law is responsible for death is what Paul is saying. The law is again vindicated in sin and the weakness of the flesh are again implicated. Paul wants us to see that the very powerful and wicked character of sin, the sinfulness of sin, as Paul puts it in this verse, is to turn a good thing, the law, to a very evil purpose, namely death. While the law can be seen as the instrumental cause of death, it is sin that is the ultimate cause. Remember, Paul has said back in verse 11 that sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me through it, through the commandment, killed me. So let me give you what is probably a very poor analogy, but hopefully will help us to understand the thrust of what Paul is saying. We do not blame a car for the death of someone in a drunk driving accident. It is the drunk driver alone who is responsible as a cause of death, even though the vehicle is what delivered the deadly blow. The law is spiritual, as Paul says. It's from God. It's not to blame for death. Rather, death is a result of sin. 
And now he's going to expand on this idea, further emphasizing the power of sin and the powerlessness of the law. Paul, again, speaking in the first person, tells us that he desires to obey the the law, yet is unable to due to the power of sin in him. Sin causes a conflict between desire and performance. The will is there, but the ability is not. Look at verses 15 through 20. Paul's going to say this multiple times. Verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then again in verses 18 and 19, For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. There is a radical discontinuity between will and deed. And why is this the case? Is the law to blame for this discontinuity? No. Paul again affirms the goodness of the law. Look at verse 16. Now if I do what I, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, it's not the fault of the law that he's doing what he recognizes is wrong and what the law condemns. What's the blame then for the good I do not do and the evil I do commit? Look at what Paul says, verses 17 and 18. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And he's going to say the same thing again in verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Twice here, Paul says that the culprit is sin that dwells within me. Now we need to note here that Paul isn't denying responsibility for a sin. He isn't saying, I'm not guilty of committing these acts. He acknowledges doing what he hates and what is wrong. But while he isn't denying responsibility, he is confessing impotence. He is saying that sin has power over him. He can't do what he desires. He's been brought into bondage, into slavery due to the power of sin, which is really seen as an alien power that brings human beings into subjection. Or at least this is how... It feels to him. Paul will continue in verses 21 through 25 describing the duplicity of reality that is caused by the relationship between sin and the law in our lives. Look at what we have here. We find in these verses two eyes, one who desires to do the law of God and delights in it, and one who cannot obey. We find two laws. The law of God, which is portrayed as powerless, and the law of sin, which is continuously waging war and taking captives. We find two cries. One cry from the depths of despair, lamenting his corruption, yearning for a final deliverance, and one who exalts in God through Christ as the only Savior. And finally, we find two forms of slavery. One to the law of God with the mind, and one to the law of sin with the flesh. At this point, we should have a very, very clear picture of the law and sin. So again, what's the big picture? We should be able to acknowledge a couple of things at least. First, the law is good. 
It helps us to understand God's will and desire for us. It helps us to see clearly our sin, and it shows us the power of sin. Second, the law is powerless. While the law can show us our sin, it is completely impotent in helping us to live up to its demands. The law is not only incapable of helping us obey, but sin is actually using the law against us to bring about further sin and death. Sin is powerful. The law is powerless. And with this understanding, I think that perhaps we can figure out the position from which Paul speaks. But we have to look back at chapter 6. And when we do that, we see striking parallels between these two chapters. The main topic in chapter 6 was what? Sin. And Paul has told us that those who are in Christ are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. In chapter 7, the main topic has been the law. Paul has told us that those who are in Christ have been released from the law and are now bound to Christ. But even as Paul has told us of our new reality in Christ in chapter 6, that we are dead to sin, what has he also told us? That sin is not yet dead in us. We do, after all, live in this tension between being renewed but not finally renewed, transformed but not yet glorified. Sin is still at work beckoning to us. It's still attempting to allure us back into the dominion from which we have been delivered, trying to enslave us under its power once again. And even as those of us who are in Christ are no longer slaves to sin, and it is an utter contradiction for those who have died to sin to continue to sin, our lives will be a constant battle of trying to put sin to death. But likewise, here in chapter 7, Paul, I think, is articulating a similar reality with the law. Even as those in Christ have been released from the law, those on this side of eternity remain very far from meeting the law's requirements. Therefore, the law will continue to function in the ways in which it has been described here, even for the regenerate believer. As we continue to wrestle with sin, it will continue to expose our sin. It will continue to expose our duplicity as we remain impotent to obey the law by our own power. It will continue to reveal the power of sin as it is used by sin. And we will continue to feel as those who are slaves to sin. And so perhaps we too will at times Sound just like Paul sounds here in Romans 7. Perhaps you, at certain times in your life, have felt as Paul seems to feel here. Thus, the great pastor and theologian Sinclair Ferguson might be on to something when he states that he believes that Paul is describing himself, that he is describing himself as an ordinary Christian believer. But here's what Ferguson says, which I think is the key. Paul is not saying everything there is to say about himself. He is, as it were, saying only that about himself, which he discovers when he gazes into the holy law of God that is an expression of God's character and reveals, yes, 
the deep contradictions even in the experience and behavior patterns of the very best Christians. This is what you would expect from one point of view of the man who says, for all of my fruitfulness, I am at the end of the day the chief of sinners. This is a portrait of the chief of sinners, indeed a portrait of all sinners, Christian sinners included. As the law of God exposes us for what we really are, justified men and women who are, as Luther puts it, simultaneously sinners. And if Ferguson is right, then Paul is teaching us a very valuable lesson here about the reality of the law in our lives and its use. For as often as we look at the holy law of God, especially as it has been beautifully and perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ, and as it shines into our hearts, that we will discover in ourselves all that is lacking. The law will, as Ferguson says, penetrate into places that expose the veneers of our obedience. As we grow as Christians, we will find that our obedience is completely superficial compared to the obedience that Jesus Christ deserves. Does the law do this to you? And as it does it, do you realize that there remains in you a sort of contradiction in your very being? That you have been claimed by God in Christ, but you don't fully know that reality yet. Have you felt this and said, yes, sin dwells within me. It's still warring for my soul and the law is showing the sinfulness of sin. And hopefully this will drive us straight to Christ. And we will understand that it is not only sin that dwells in us, but Christ who dwells in us also. And his dwelling in us is our hope of glory. So we would call out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But there is another implication here in these verses that I would like for us to draw out this morning. Paul is not only vindicating the goodness of the law here, he's also setting us on a course to see what is the fruit of being under the law. Remember back in verses 5 and 6, he said, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What Paul is proposing here about the law is not only that we cannot be justified by the law, but also that we cannot be sanctified by the law. Said more simply, the law that cannot justify the sinner cannot sanctify the saint. Let me say that again. The law that cannot justify the sinner cannot sanctify the saint. The law is powerless to do either. And the fruit of being under the law is always death due to sin. Every single time it is 
death. It is death before justification. It is death after justification. Therefore, it is not only that we cannot rely on obedience to the law for our justification because it is powerless in that regard, but the law is also powerless to sanctify us. In chapter 6 and 7, if they are paralleling one another, then just as we war against returning to the desires of the flesh, we must also resist the temptation to put ourselves back under the law. In this way, this passage in chapter 7 can serve as a cautionary glimpse of what it looks like for a justified believer to return to being under the law for the sake of his or her sanctification. Ferguson makes the observation that if this is Paul describing himself in the present, that it is not everything there is to say about himself. And indeed, it cannot be everything there is to say. Did you notice a glaring omission from Paul if he is, in fact, describing his experience as a regenerated, mature believer? What was missing? There is a very deafening silence when it comes to the Holy Spirit in these verses. I very much doubt that Paul has simply forgotten about the Spirit here. He's been drawing contrasts in chapters 6 and 7. He wants us to see the differences between life lived according to the flesh under the power of sin and the law and life lived under grace. He wants us to understand that we're either dead in sin or alive in Christ, that we are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And now moving from chapter 7 to chapter 8, we're going to see a very stark contrast between death under the law and life in the Spirit. He wants to hammer home in chapter 7 that the fruit of being under the law is death in order that he can hammer home what the fruit of being alive in the Spirit is in chapter 8. And it almost seems like Paul is presenting us with an option Which would you like? Which is it? Death under the law or life in the spirit? And it's a ridiculous question. It's a non-choice. But I think Paul sees the danger here. Let me ask you, why is it that we so often turn to the law to be sanctified? It's a real issue, isn't it? There's a group in our very city, and probably not only one, that is trying to return to the works of the law to earn God's favor. Why is it that we, having been freely justified by grace through faith, have such a tendency toward legalism as we work out our faith in the process of sanctification? Is it because... We, having had our eyes open to what Christ has done and our sinfulness, feel the need to clean ourselves up for God? Is it because we need to present ourselves worthy before God? And so we turn from Christ who has redeemed us by his power alone. And we, by our own strength, try to fix ourselves. There's a warning here in this passage. It isn't that we shouldn't pursue the law. Paul will tell us that we have been free to fulfill the law in the power of the Spirit in the first few verses of chapter 8. It is that we shouldn't pursue the law in the wrong way. 
Namely, we shouldn't pursue the law as a means of earning favor. When we do this, we have made the law our masters. And we will certainly face what Paul is describing here. Painful struggle. Humiliating defeat. I hope to say this as clearly as possible. If you make your religion after justification to be law and not gospel, if it is slavery to rules and regulations and not the newness of freedom through Christ Jesus, then you are like Lazarus, who has emerged from the tomb, alive, but still bound hand and foot. We will get into what newness of life in the spirit looks like next Sunday, but I I don't want to say too much about that this morning. However, in closing, let me say this. Do not just look to Christ Jesus only for your justification, but also for your sanctification. Rely on him, depend on him, rest in him. This is a glorious thing about our salvation. Jesus doesn't just forgive us of our sin. He frees us from them and empowers us to live for the glory of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what we celebrate on Ascension Day in Pentecost, which is next Sunday. Christ's ministry didn't end on the cross, nor did it end on Easter Sunday. Christ's ministry to us continues as he sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places where he continues to bless us with every spiritual blessing that we should be holy and blameless before him. He will bring the work he began in us to completion on the day when he returns. Dearly beloved, look to Christ. Look to Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the words of your servant, Paul. We give you thanks that he has shown to us the power of sin and the powerlessness of the law. And we give you thanks that he shows us the glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Who not only sets us free from our sins, but also but also empowers us to live to the praise of your glory. Father, help us to do that. Help us to rest in him, for we pray this in his name. Amen.